Welcome to uh, Ness and Dorma. You're not at all regular and quite frankly disgracefully all over the shop chat about 80s and 90s football. For those of you who are still out there listening after waiting for so long, thank you very much for your patience because it's taken us forever to get back with another episode. This is the second episode of Series 2, I think something like about six months after the first one. Um, I am your very apologetic host, Lee Calvert, and joining me for this episode's chat is footy history men about town, Mr. Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello. And Mike Gibbons. Hiya. If you want to get in touch with us, but don't think we'll answer because it'll be take us ages to get back to you, is you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Ness Pod. Thank you for those of you who have asked where we are. It's nice to know that you're out there wanting to hear from us. Um, and there's also a website, nessondormapod.com, and you can find stuff like that if you want to get in touch with us. Now, the, tonight's episode, the recording of this episode is very close to the 25th anniversary of the 17th of November 1993, which was quite a seismic night in international football. So we're going to focus on the events of that very evening. Some of you listening out there will probably know immediately the significance of that date. Others of you will leave you in suspense for a minute, but don't try and Google it if you're driving. Um, before we get on to that, I'll ask you two, what, what were you up to on the night of the 17th of November 1993? What, what, where, where were you up to? What was your life like then? Um, I was uh, in the middle of my A-levels. Yeah, um, me too. I remember watching... The games or game, uh, yeah, I was just uh, just being seventeen, in, basically an inadequate, <laughs> an inadequate teenager. Yeah, that sounds similar. I was in a pub watching one of the most significant games in the country, where the most you know that it was relevant to. It was quite an emotional roller coaster. I was in sixth form, generally being a bit too skinny and gangly, and uh, yeah, that that was kind of me. Were you in sixth form as well, Mike? Just to just to close it all off. Uh, no, I would have been. I'd just turned 16 then, so I would have been doing my GCSEs, I think. Would have been in the last years of GCSEs. And uh, I was living in Wales and going to school in Wales at the, uh, at the time, um, obviously. And uh, two yeah. days uh, before the, the Wales qualifier, which we'll come on to, I actually I went to watch uh, the Wales, the opening training session in Cardiff. Oh. Um, I didn't actually go to the game because then, as now, I've got no money. Are you uh, are you one of those pricks who ruined the pitch? <laughs> I know. It, I think it was the 400 uh, <laughs> screaming teenagers around Ryan Giggs that, <laughs> that took the pitch up who were told uh, very gruffly by Terry Orth to get the fuck off it. <laughs> uh, and obviously... But, uh, yeah, go on, Mike. Sorry. I was just going to say, that was, that was as close as I got to the actual action. But uh, yeah, on the night itself, I think I... Uh, I gave up on the England game after about 20 minutes and uh, switched over to the Wales one. Yeah, which we'll all talk about in more detail later on. If you fancied watching a bit of telly on the 17th of November 1993, uh, the BBC was basically, as you'd expect, Grain Jill for the evening, followed by Neighbours. Doug's hopes of, re- of a reconciliation are destroyed by a stranger. That sounds bad. Uh, then you had Sports Night, which is the football. Then you had a bit of a documentary. And then you had... Sorry, yeah, Sports Night Special. Then you had normal Sports Night. It was like a double whammy of Sports Night Wonder on the 17th on the B- on BBC One. Oh. On BBC Two, you fancied you could watch Star Trek and then Def Two. Do you remember Def Two? They used to have all these like, <clears throat> it wasn't, wasn't like Dance Energy with Normski part of Def Two. Do you remember all that? I oh, I thought you said Death 2. No, Death 2, D-E-F 2. It was like a sort of an hour and a half of youth programming that happened between sort of six and a half, seven on BBC 2. That's when the fresh... 
He was every day, if I remember right. He read, uh, listeners may correct me. You know, that this, this is the slot that used to have the Fresh Prince of Bel Air in, and oh yeah, and yeah, Dance yeah. Energy and all, and and strange stuff like that. Tonight it was the Rough Guide to the Americas. All right. Later on, I won't go through it all, but later on is a fascinating program that I have no memory of, which is on for ten minutes at ten to ten to nine, which is called Celebrity Mantelpiece. <laughs> Which sounds exactly like something from TV Go Home, doesn't it? Yeah, ahead of its time. <laughs> Celebrity mantelpiece, followed by Seinfeld, followed by the Buddha of Suburbia. Um, if you fancied taking a trip to your local multiplex on the 17th of November 1993, the number one film was the genial political rom-com Dave, starring Kevin Kline and Sigourney Weaver. You could also take in Demolition Man, which was a dreadful film on all levels, The Remains of the Day, and the Kim Basinger heist, The Real McCoy. On the radio, the number one was I Would Do Anything for Love, bracket, but I Won't Do That, close bracket, by Meatloaf, which would stay at number one for seven bastard weeks. <clears throat> Does anyone remember what replaced it as number one? Sorry, say that again? Does anyone remember who replaced it as number one in December uh, of 1993? Was it Dina Carroll? It wasn't. It was Mr. Blobby. <laughs> of course it was, yeah. You can't deny these were high times. In the hip parade. I was going to go for Wet, Wet, Wet because that was number one for about four years or something. That and Brian Adams, <laughs> wasn't it? For this 16 weeks I each or something. Yeah, so that's what was going on on the 17th of November 1993, beyond what we're actually going to talk about tonight. So the 17th of November 1993. So why this night in particular? I say Some of you may have already figured it out, but basically this was the final night of European qualifying for, US, for the USA 94 World Cup. I forgot that kind of final nights in qualifying were so much, so far ahead of the tournament. Are they still that far ahead of the tournament? Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. What, what have you been doing for that? I know. Yeah. Why haven't I? Why isn't that? I think it's because of the playoffs. But anyway, you trying, trying to tell me you don't like modern football, Lee? It's, well, you, I've heard that rumor. You don't pay enough attention. <laughs> so, Rob, what is before we talk about the specific matches in the state of play? Mm. What is it? To give us some context, what is it that's different about this night compared to, as we've just alluded to, what we see in qualifying today? Well, I think it re- represents, at the risk of sounding like a miserable old son, it represents a kind of golden age of kind of sporting integrity and jeopardy because USA 94 was the last World Cup with 24 teams rather than 32. But more than that, <clears throat> after from 98 onwards, UEFA introduced playoffs for uh, European qualification. So... From then on, you had a real safety net to ensure the big countries got there. I mean, occasionally they mess it up, obviously, but generally they had so many safety nets. Um, whereas here, you have pretty much all the big teams, apart from um, Germany and someone who I've doubtless forgotten, who went into that one game knowing that if they messed up, that was it. No World Cup, no safety net, no playoff, nothing. And the other reason that it, I love this night, apart from <clears throat> the drama which we're going to, is that all the games pretty much simultaneously. There weren't, you know, there weren't match weeks. There were just there was just one night um, mm. of just just ridiculous overload of drama where you try to take in. I mean, I probably have a false memory of this because I can't imagine the coverage of you know Italy v Portugal was particularly strong at the time. <laughs> there was no red button or anything. It was just one game on the BBC, but it felt like you were kind of gathering all this information from a million different games. It's a bit like the last day of the season you know, the relegation or whatever, but on the grand scale of World Cup qualification at the end of it. Yeah. It was just a, it was just a better time, really. I just, I mean, I mean, now there are so many safety nets and it's just a bit irritating. Um, yeah, because I said, I mean... it represents the end of that era of 
kind of I suppose purity. I don't think it sounds too wanky to say that. No, it is. No, yeah, and there's, you know, you can talk about the you know the European competitions as well, the, the European club competitions and everything round about the same time. So yeah, it is. It is a heart back to something more pure and and something more. It's a bit like the, it's like it's like the sport before VAR came in, I suppose, isn't it? The cataclys the cataclysmic nature of it was still there. That this is it. This is it. It's over. There's no review. There's no chance again. It's tonight, and you've got to get it sorted, basically. Precisely. Uh, even in the playoffs, you get two nights, don't you? You know, even if you mess up the first leg, yeah, if you're exactly. a big team, you know, you, you get another go at it, and you're probably going to sort it out there. So. And you can punch the ball in the net to get into the World it Cup and stuff, things yeah. like that. <laughs> go on, Rob. It sorry. Back to the whole thing we talked about the European Cup as well, when Forrest met Liverpool in yeah, the September, first round, yeah, <laughs> first round, Champions of Europe against Champions of England, and one of them. That's it. You're gone. There's no other fixtures. There's no Europa League parachute. Nothing. That's I, I, we all know sports pure for that. Obviously, it doesn't suit um, the uh, commercial imperatives that have bugged up every facet of our existence. So, um, <laughs> so Rob's in a cracking mood tonight, everybody. So yeah, <laughs> so yeah. So that's why one is and and actually to add to that because it was the end of that era, but also what a way to end the era with the as we're going to talk about the games in which were played and the drama that was played out and the stories that came out of it. So what's the state of play coming in then? Let's look at this. There were six groups in this qualifying tournament, groups one to six, funnily enough. As we come into the day, Greece, Russia, Sweden and Norway have all already qualified. Um, yeah, the big hitters. It's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But, I mean, Norway we know about because obviously they're in England's group. Um, but yeah, that's They, what they did the unsporting thing of finding a football team and shitting all over England, didn't they? Yeah, playing Jostein Flo right wing. Um, but yeah, just it was also the fact it wasn't just how many teams were in jeopardy, it's how many big teams. Um, pretty much everyone apart of Germany qualified because they, they were, were hosts, champions. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's it, really. I mean, even actually as a kind of postscript to this, that night at about one in the morning, if you were so inclined, you could watch Argentina play Australia in their playoff because they've been plugged 5-0 by Colombia. So that was kind of the last qualifier. So even Argentina was kind of scrambling to qualify. Yes, it's it's amazing. So I said Germany had already qualified as hosts, but other than that, um, well, all the big names are pretty much staring down the barrel of two weeks in Menorca, weren't they? Rather than a, <laughs> rather than a, rather than a, a transatlantic jaunt to the uh, to the the greatest country in the world. So I think the probably the most sensible thing to do is kind of go group by group, really, and we'll address the games as they go as as we go through. If we start with Group One, now you've already mentioned um, Italy, Portugal, Rob. This is that group. So Italy, Switzerland, and Portugal were the ones who were fighting out for the places in this one. Mm. Uh, Switzerland were playing Estonia in this game. Yes, right? Switzerland, who were managed by Roy Hodgson, obviously, <clears throat> they needed to win. They were third in the group, but they knew a win by two goals or more against home to Estonia would put them through. And that was kind of expected because Estonia were whipping boys. I think Switzerland won 4-0. They did win 4-0. Um, I for one am glad of that because without that... We wouldn't have had John Motson screaming "Breaky" as the opening <laughs> for, the, for the opening goal of USA '94, which I don't know why is always stuck in my memory. Because I think it's because Motti always seems that bit more excited in World Cup in World Cup, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And Hodgson said it was the greatest day of his life, which I'm sure his wife and children were chuffed. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic achievement because Italy and Portugal. This was the Italian team, obviously, we know about, and this was Portugal's the kind of young golden generation. So to qualify ahead of them, was, even with Bragi, was a pretty big achievement. <laughs> it was a huge deal for Switzerland as well. I think it was, I think it was their first World Cup since 1954. Was it? Um, oh, Craig. 
Yeah, I didn't realize I think that, I, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, actually, I, I might have that wrong. Actually, maybe maybe they went in '62. It was their first World Cup for basically you know, a couple, like, a couple yeah, of generations. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So Switzerland pretty much did the business. And then it was down to Italy versus Portugal, which was played. Which was well. <laughs> has there ever been a more offside goal than the one scored by Dido Baggio in this game? It was uh, well, actually, yes, but. No, it was a mile offside, wasn't it? And it came quite late on when, you know, you're just entering that period where one goal and Italy have got no time to come back. Um, and Portugal have played pretty well. But yeah, it's worth putting on the Twitter feed because it was a long way offside. He was behind um, the keeper. He was so far offside. Oh, he? He, was actually the nearest, oh, he was actually the nearest person to the goal. <laughs> he was oh, in the, Yeah, it was remarkable how far offside did, he is. Did the linesman think it come off a defender? or did he just? I'm assuming he must have done because he was just... But well, And also because... Because I think he was a bit left of playing out the way, and it was off a deflected shot. Yeah. So I think there's a bit of like lines where somebody thought, "Oh, hang on, has that been passed to him?" Or and and in the split well, second, didn't make the decision. One thing, one thing I would say is, um, like there are loads of things about uh, old football or superior, but the linesman or the assistant refereeing is diabolical. The improvement is so good to the point these days where they get actually they get moaned if they get this minute decision wrong, which is so harsh. But you look at the old ones, they were just crap. I mean, Nicola Berti at Italia 90 is the famous one that's worth Googling um, mm. or YouTubing or whatever. Yeah, I, so it doesn't surprise me. So the, the teams on that day was uh, where uh, Pagliuca was. It was 1-0, wasn't it, to Italy? Mm. Pretty strong Italy team. Pagliuca, Maldini, Costa Curta, Baresi, Benarivo, Dino Baggio, Donadoni. Was Donadoni playing the US then? No, he'd not gone to the New no. York, New Jersey Metro stars at that yeah. point. <laughs> Roberto I mean, Baggio, Casaraghi. So they went into that game needing needing a draw, Italy, to qualify. Mm. I mean, you just brazy Costa Curta, you'd think, yeah, you'd be happy enough for that. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what happened. By, by, I read a few reports about it. Uh, Portugal had loads of the ball, you know, pretty football, what we now call tiki-taka, but Italy were kind of relatively comfortable. Um Kuto got himself sent off late, didn't he? For after Kaziragi did a magnificent bit of play he, acting. Yeah, didn't he put the nuts or not? He, not really. He waved that massive like curly mop at him, didn't he? And then it was it was all over. Yeah, it would have been a huge deal if Italy hadn't qualified. I mean, you know, they went on to get to the final there, but I think they hadn't qualified for Euro '92 either. So, oh yes. yeah, yeah, of course, because it was yeah the eighteen tournament and all that, yeah. Yeah, so it would have been back to back, you know, not qualifying for two tournaments in a row, which is kind of you know, just unheard of for them, isn't it? That's one of the things you find as we, go, as we go through this tonight. There's a lot of those sliding doors moments that imagine if this had gone that way, what you wouldn't have had in the World Cup. Yeah. You know, so yes. Italy obviously got to the final. And then we, when we talk about Romania later on and Bulgaria, then that, that comes into sharp relief as well. This um, Portugal team. Again, not a bad team. You talk, you know, Vitor Baia, Kuto got himself sent off, Jorge Costa, Veloso, João Pinto, a pretty young Rui Costa, I'm guessing, at that point. Paulo Souza, yeah. mm. Panera. That was, that was a team who won the World Youth Cup, wasn't it, in 91, I think? Pretty yeah, much. they won them... Um, uh, Michael No More. They won them back-to-back, -back, didn't they? They won in 91, and then they oh, won that's in 93. Right. Yes. So, um, yeah, they all would have been about sort of 20, 21 years old just coming through. I mean, even at Euro 96, they were still, you know, pretty underdeveloped as a team then. Mm. Uh, 
it just shows how tight the margins were because um, Portugal went into that game same goal difference as Italy and Italy were had a goal scored. So the previous month that meant Italy could draw, Portugal had to win. Previous month Portugal I think had beaten Estonia three 0 and had they won four 0 it meant they would have gone to Italy with with the draw effectively. So it just shows how and the shitloads of this point. everywhere around this yeah, all night, isn't it? So it's just, yeah, crazy how close it was. And there was no you know there was no live as it stands stuff back then, was there? They weren't big on screen graphics and things. So you you're just you're mind boggling while you're trying to get it sorted. Yeah, I used to, because I used to be quite an inadequate teenager, I used to take pride in working all that stuff out. Whereas now, <laughs> if I try to, before I genuinely have got no idea. I don't know whether it's, well, I do know what's happened, but to my brain. But yeah, it's really strange. It seems so much harder now. So ultimately then, from Group 1, we had Switzerland and Italy going through. That's what happened. And Portugal went off to nurse their wounds ready for Euro 96. Mm. And um, Scotland, yeah, Scotland finished fourth, I think. Yeah, I think this is well, it's a point worth making. This is, is this the first time in quite a while that not a single home nation qualifies? First time in an absolute age. Michael will be able to tell you. Well, it's the, it the first time ever since well, Britain started entering teams in 1950 and they'd always had at least one in up until this point and then... Yeah, so sorry to give you spoilers, but that's what happens at the end of this. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure most people know that, but if you listen to this, you probably know that already. But uh, yeah, so moving on to Group 2, which is, you know, let's talk about England, I suppose. Um, <laughs> England and Holland, and, and obviously Norway have already have, have managed to piss everybody off by already qualifying out of this group. Mm, um, easily. Yeah, yeah, walked it, didn't they? Um, the state of players we come in, England were playing San Marino. Um, and had to beat them by seven goals to qualify, but that would only work if Holland lost in Poland to Poland, funnily enough. It's worthwhile dwelling just for a second, I think, yes. for me, on the England team for a sec, uh, which was just, just, just for the sake of, of, of mulling over it, really. David Seaman, Lee Dixon, Stuart Pearce, Des Walker, Gary Pallister, Stuart Ripley... David Platt, Andy Sinton, Paul Ince, Ian Wright, and Les Ferdinand. I believe this was Stuart Ripley's first cap. I'd like to see uh, Pep Guardiola win a league with that midfield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where's your tiki tacker now? And also Stuart Ripley played in the number Actually, four no, Stuart Ripley played in the number four shirt, which is just the wrongest thing you could ever imagine, isn't it? <laughs> was in was in not number four? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure Ripley was was number four that day. Yeah, I think at at the time Ripley got picked, actually, um, Matt Letitia, I think he's playing brilliantly for Southampton. It was around the time he scored those two uh, yeah. goals against Newcastle, and there was this kind of rush of opinion to try and get him in the England squad uh, for this game. And Taylor didn't pick him and obviously took Ripley, started Ripley. And I think uh, Letitia went into the papers and said, well, no offence, but I know I'm a better player than Stuart Ripley. Is. <laughs> he was uh, he was perfectly competent, Stuart Ripley, wasn't he? At doing the job that he did, I suppose, which is running yeah, up right, and down yeah. the right. I can't, I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but I think I would have picked Ripley ahead of Letitia as well, uh, just specifically for that game, because, you know, San Marino were obviously rubbish and you just kind of, Really root, mundane route one, well, not route one, but kind of cross base yeah, no, football. Yeah, yeah. Probably Direct the football, way to bombard yeah. them, try and score seven. Yeah, so they needed the seven goals. Um, yes, but Taylor, bless him, he loved it. He loved a, a maverick or an unlikely selection, didn't he? Andy Gray in Poland was another one. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah. Bless it. Um, but of course, the big thing that happened was that after 8.3 seconds, um, Davide Gaultieri scored a goal against England. Yeah. Which, um, it... go on, Mike. I was just going to say, the thing I love about this goal is that because uh, England obviously want to start with a high tempo, they've got loads of players on the halfway line at the start. So when San Marino kick off, England's intent, I think, is just to rush them and harry them in possession straight away. So rather than going backwards, San Marino go forwards instead and just venture into the England <laughs> half. And then, yeah, eight and a half seconds later, uh, thanks to a, a really bad touch from Stuart Pearce, they're 1-0 up. And there's a brilliant bit of radio commentary. I think it's from Jonathan Pierce, um, where he's, he's kind of introducing the game and he kind of re- he has to read out, because I think it's on Capital Gold or something, read out like sponsors' messages and things. <laughs> and he doesn't get all the way through them before Sam Reed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should have dug yeah. that out. It's too late now. Um, yeah, so they score it's 1-0, but of course then England do manage to win. Very comfortably, and then it finished. They do get the seven goals, don't they? But it's seven one. No, but they had to win. Yeah, exactly. It would have been even funnier had Holland actually lost in Poland. If yeah, that can Kelsey you imagine Ocon. what that? Can you imagine the press the day after what they did? I mean, they did pretty badly to Taylor anyway, but that would have been even worse, wouldn't it? The thing I like about that game is that normally when England go out of a major tournament or fail to qualify, there's usually a lot of anger and sometimes you know a sense of injustice or you know um, brave lions and all that crap here it was just the most beautiful moment of fast the, the kind of moment you normally get with the England cricket team rather than the football team just utter especially kind of 1993 black. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and you just I, I feel like that that moment was like a litmus test for a person because if you didn't burst out laughing even if you're an England fan which I was and I, <laughs> I guess you chops away if you didn't burst out laughing at that moment then then yeah I don't know there's something wrong with you yeah so, the sun Sorry, there's something um, symbolic as well about the fact... I mean, this game was played in Bologna. In front of 2,378 people, Yes, to be precise. It's in the the same stadium that in Italia 90, it's where David Platt scored his sort of over-the-shoulder volley against Belgium. Oh, yeah, of course. Which put put England into the quarterfinals. And it it was kind of symbolic of how far England had fallen in the, the cycle of one World Cup. You know, you had all the hope generated by Italia 90. And then back in the same stadium three and a bit years later, they're shipping one to, you know, a computer sales quirk in the <laughs> 10 seconds. It's, uh, it was a remarkable fall from grace. And, and, and also on the, on the night as well, Ian Wright, I think he's the last, he might be the last England player to score four goals in one game. But it's just completely overshadowed by the fact that... Uh, Didn't Harry Kane you know, do you it? Know, the famous goal went in at the other end. Did Harry Kane get four against Panama? Or was it only three? Three. Well, three. The shittest yeah. hat-trick that's ever been scored, ever. Um, yeah. Or one of them, certainly. He is. He, I, I just had a look. He is the last score for. Um, and before that was Platt also against San Marino, the return fixture. So and the other th- another what I didn't quite realise, actually, in, in the midst of all this and the kind of comedy element of it, as you said, Rob, was that this was Des Walker's last cap. Yes. And, I mean, he and, was on the way down. Yeah, but even made... so, what a way to end that career. What a shithouse way to end his career, not qualifying know. in front of like just over 2,000 people in an echoey nightmare stadium in Bologna against a kind of, well, against a pub team, effectively. You think, and shit, sad... what a way to end a career. The sad thing is that his mistakes or his weird lack of sudden lack of pace had actually one of the main reasons he didn't qualify. He was done against uh, Holland by Overmars, famously. Yeah. He was 
caught ball watching, I think, that led to Norway's first goal in Oslo. Um, he was at Sampdoria at the time, because... wasn't he? And he got to Sampdoria and ended up playing fullback. It was or something. back. It was a nightmare. It was back. It? Yeah, he did, but he was back at Sheffield Wednesday by then. Um, by the time of San Marino game, right. I mean, I would have him in an all-time England eleven. I thought he was just the most amazing player. I'm still not quite sure what happened to him. I think there was some kind of injury that uh, took a bit. Of it. I mean, his pace was obviously everything, um, and it took a bit of that way. M- Michael no more. Was he ever in a squad under Venables? I know he didn't play under him. No, he, ne- he never even had a look at him, Venables. Didn't he? he never called him at once. I think he just mm. looked at his pace, didn't he, and went, sorry, mate, it's gone. <laughs> you know I suppose the other thing is Venables, Venables like centre-halves, he could play a little bit at least, um, and Walker, bless him, couldn't do that. He was a classic stopper, wasn't he? Yeah. Easy stopper. Um, so yeah, It's we... worth, um, sorry, it's just worth making a quick comment on the Poland-Holland um, game. Mm. I mean, it, yeah, Holland did win 3-1, but that game, it was locked at 1-0. Kind of half time, yeah, yeah, half time, and in, into a bit of the second half as well. So it, it wasn't a complete given at half time that you know it, it was out of England's hands now and it couldn't possibly happen. And also, I think before the game, this was quite a controversy at the time. The Daily Mirror, I think it was the Daily Mirror, or it might have been the Sun, offered the Polish players ten thousand pounds a man. You are <laughs> joking, you know, I don't yeah. remember that. Good God. Yeah, I think I'm sure it was. In, well, I remember reading it in my house, so it must have been in the Daily Mirror. I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think maybe they put the offer in and then they rescinded it after, like you know, they got loads of criticism for it. But uh, incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's how des- that's how desperate the situation was. And the Holland game finished. Holland in Poland finished three-one eventually, didn't it? Yes, Bergkamp was yeah. excellent. I mean, <clears throat> at that time he was having a nightmare at Inter, but um, it didn't seem to affect his international form. And of course, the real hero who's had the most sort of effect out of all this was Davide Galtieri, wasn't it? He's, he's, was, what's the quote from him that he still, I still put the video on of that goal if I'm feeling a bit fed up or I want to feel good about the world again. Did you interview him, Mike? Uh, no, I couldn't get hold of him actually. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't get hold of him for the book. I tried to, but um, yeah, that's 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 a quote I've read from him. Is that you know, it's it's kind of he puts it on every now and again to cheer himself up. And I think. I Scotland went to play in San Marino. Oh yeah, they did, years they? after yeah. this game. Um, yeah, went fans. to the. Uh, is that is that urban was... legend? That... Oh, is this true? I don't know if it's true, but um, the, the, I mean, the urban myth is that they went and found where he worked and just <laughs> kind of took him out and bought him, you know, as much beer as he wanted. Basically, it sounds very urban and, and, legendy, doesn't it? But it yeah, might. It sounds enough urban legendy, legendy to be true, doesn't it? But. So, yeah, Holland and Norway go walking through from this group to USA 94. And Holland were involved in some pretty decent games in USA 94 as well. So, again, that kind of sliding doors thing. Um, but I suppose we won't go through this again, but it's worthwhile pointing out, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn and all that. Um, Venables then comes in. And if you want a bit more of a discussion about Venables and Euro 96 with England, you can check out Series 1, Episode 12 of this very podcast for further discussion or- on how that went. Or you can buy Mike's book. Which is a masterpiece. Which is a masterpiece of modern football writing, which is a When Football Came Home, which is about Euro 96. Please go out and uh, I'll just, just say quickly about the sliding doors thing, actually. I mean, it does work the other way as well. I mean, can you imagine if England had actually made it somehow, <laughs> gone to the World Cup with Taylor and, you know, got to, say, the second round or the quarterfinals and kept him... You know, in the job in the, yeah, for a six, true, there yeah, would have been no yeah. Venables, and yeah, it's just like a, it's a cavalcade of what ifs. This it's fantastic. <laughs> so yeah, so that's Group Two off Holland and Norway go. We then move on to to Group Three, which is 
Ireland, Ooh. Spain, and Denmark find out. The permutations were such a complicated situation in this game. The maths required to extrapolate it and solve it was probably, I think, what was written on the blackboard when Will Hunting solved it in that film. I think that was the problem they put on the blackboard to solve was was, was this game. A quick word on Denmark, because, of course, let's not forget Denmark were European champions at this time. Obviously, Rob and Mike know a thing or two about Denmark, having again written the book on it. Um, Denmark were European champions at this time. So less than, well, what, 14 months ago, they were champions of Europe. Mm. And here they were yeah. in Spain versus Spain in Seville, trying to get qualified, struggling to qualify for the next World Cup. Again, if you watch... Go on, Rob. No, I was going to say, they'd only conceded one goal in 11 games, Denmark, um, going into the Spain game. And they were unbeaten um, on top of the group. So, yeah, they've, they've done pretty well in a really tough group. I mean, Denmark, Spain and Jack Charlton's Island with only two going through. That's a nasty group. Yes, and it's... Uh, yeah, so if you do want to know more about that Denmark-European champion thing, you've got Series 1, Episode 3 of the pod. Or, of course, you've got um, Mike and Rob's fantastic book on the subject. Whose name? I can't remember now, so you're going to have to tell Danish, somebody. Danish Dynamite. I knew it was something like punchy, and I couldn't even really remember it. Yeah, so Danish Dynamite, which is fantastic. Trying to keep it simple, this is the simplest way I can put it, Denmark needed a draw to, to go through. Ireland and Spain had to win. To be certain. There was a chance of qualifying with draws, but I refer you back to Will Hunting if you want to, if you want to basically <laughs> sort, sort all, all that out. So what is it to talk about in these games then? Should we do Denmark-Spain first? Yeah, well, um, so, I mean, first of all, there's the history, really. Spain have put Denmark out of Euro 84 in the semis of Mexico 86, beat them in Euro 88. They were a proper bogey team. Um, but then after about, I think it was inside the first 10 minutes, Zuba Zareta gave the ball straight to Michael Laudrup, two Barcelona players, then put him up in the air outside the box and was sent off. So um, Canizares came on for his debut, I think. Hmm. Uh, and already the, the most enormous advantage against 10 men. But the problem they had was that they only needed a draw and they were a naturally counter-attacking team. So there were kind of mixed messages going on, you know. And the fact it was Spain as well, it just felt like subconsciously they were looking for booby traps everywhere. Um, and they were right to, as we would find out <laughs> later. Um, I was just going to say a quick bit on uh, Hierro actually. So he he scores a header from the corner in the, I think it's like the 60th minute or something like that. Um, and he possibly only got to it because Schmeichel was fouled. But for a long time, um, I only well, found this out the other day. Fernando Hierro is Spain's all-time leading scorer for quite a few years. He took all the penalties, he, didn't he? He took a lot of penalties, and you know, and he played in midfield Three occasionally picks, as well. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it's remarkable from that position to. Uh, you know, to have held that record, but could have been a force yeah. nine. Yeah, but yeah, so he's yeah, he has scored. Bacero did a sly foul on Schmeichel, I and mean, he admitted it himself years later. Um, Schmeichel came for the corner, was blocked off, and then Hierro heads it into an empty net. Um, and then after that, kind of Denmark get more desperate. I mean, they could still at this point, Spain are going through. Denmark go through only if Ireland lose. The Republic of Ireland lose in Northern Ireland, so. And they had a few chances. I think Canizares made one fantastic save from a Christensen overhead kick. I'm still not sure whether it would have counted because the replays kind of suggest that the ref had given a foul. But either way, I mean, it was an amazing save. Um, and yeah, Denmark ran out of time, basically. And it finishes off 1-0 well, to Spain, doesn't it? 
Yeah, so that, that means Spain are through. Denmark had to then, well, they didn't have to wait because their game finished actually a few minutes after the Ireland game. So when they finished, they would have known what um, what happened. While we're on the Ireland game, I mean, to be honest, you couldn't have set this up. I don't know if it's better or worse, really, to have the Republic go into Northern Ireland a joke, to, try and, uh, <laughs> to try and win, the, to get into a World trouble. Cup. I had the troubles as well. I was talking moving it to Italy, to England. Um, like some of the stories are bonkers. Like even just little things like um, the coach going through. I think it was the day before the game, on the day of the game, the Republic of Ireland coach going through the streets and there's just little kids everywhere unfurling middle fingers, like eight and nine <laughs> and ten-year-olds. Um, funnily enough, this reminds me, there's a great quote from Hullet, just to, to digress, that famous Napoli-Milan title decider in 88 in mm. Naples. He said the same. They were going to the... Milan coach was slowly going to the ground. He says, like, cauldron of hate. And then he saw this sweet old lady and he kind of had this lovely sense of humanity and then her middle finger in my straight <laughs> There's um that. Speaking of great quotes, actually, there's one in Roy Keane's uh, first autobiography, the Eamon Dunphy one, where... Um, so they're, they're lining up, I think. They're either lining up for the anthems or they're walking into the ground. And uh, Roy Keane's next to Andy Townsend and there's just, yeah, this cauldron of kind of ill feeling all around them. And Andy Townsend, you know, he was born in Maidstone and, you know, plays because of his uh, Irish heritage, I think from his grandparents. Uh, he turned to Roy Keane and just said, what's all this about, Roy? <laughs> Keane's, just, Keane, Keane's like, well, I haven't got time. To, yeah, how long have like, you got, mate? Yeah. So, he's, he, so Andy Townsend had the same level of knowledge as the current Northern Ireland Secretary, if you go by the quotes that she had recently. Um, well, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So, well, what's there's the, the obviously it was. I suppose the word cauldron is overused, isn't it, for football games? Yeah. But I don't think it was overused in this uh, context whatsoever. It's, it became this increasingly cauldron-like when Jimmy Quinn scored. Well, an absolute humdinger of a volley to put Northern Ireland ahead, didn't he? That's yeah. the definition of the dip in volley, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's, it's wonderful, just, yeah. It's absolutely brilliant goal. And, uh, yeah, and I think that was... Uh, what point in the game was that? That was... 73rd was the second minute. Half. 73rd yeah, minute. Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's the Republic looking, you know, straight down the barrel, not qualifying there. Only 17 minutes to sort, uh, sort it out. I think Rob will know this story better than I do, but... Is this the point of when they tried to put Cascarino on? Yeah, let, let's cover Cascarino's yeah. uh, substitution, shall we? Go on, Rob. Yeah, so it's well, it's in his book, which is obviously one of the great sports autobiographies. But so when the goal went in, Charlton tells him to get ready. Cascarino, you know, springs for attention, undoes his tracks, realizes he hasn't got a shirt on. He's just got like a normal cotton shirt on. And then he starts kind of scrambling around a bit. It's in the dressing room. Charlton going, come on, come on, what's the fuss? <laughs> it sounds like Chuck, when he told him, I haven't got my shirt, he just explodes, you fucking idiot. <laughs> and he said, pretty much at that point, Alan McLaughlin scored the brilliant equaliser. And Casquino says in his book, I sincerely believe that had McLaughlin not scored that goal, Jack would have chimmed me there and then. Well, he had form for it, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, but McLaughlin obviously scored a brilliant, um, really good finish from the edge of the box. Uh, and that level which still wouldn't necessarily be enough but obviously um ultimately was enough because spain beat denmark funny thing is that i the republic of Ireland game finished a few minutes early um i'm not sure why but they were celebrating they had no you know they were celebrating yet yeah, had denmark then equalized they'd have looked like an absolute 
group of clowns because um, they wouldn't have qualified. And I think someone asked Jack Charlton on the pitch or in the tunnel if he wanted to watch the last few minutes, and he said, "Do I bollocks?" Um, <laughs> and then a few couple of minutes later, someone tapped him on the shoulder and said, "Will you look now?" And he looked, and it was over. And of course, during the game, there been was it somebody had said the assistant manager in Northern Ireland had said up yours to Morris oh, Setters when, Jim, when, when Jimmy Quinn scored the goal and then Jack said up yours too Billy you bastard or something as he went off yeah he said it to the wrong person yeah then, had to, <laughs> then he had to present him with an award or something didn't yeah, he at the so end it was Billy Biggum's last game oh it was his last game for Northern Ireland wasn't it yeah of and course there'd been it was. a bit there'd been a bit in the build up as well I think Bingham has been speaking about Republic of mercenaries but yeah Jack Chan said yeah up yours too Billy even though it wasn't him it was his assistant who had Given it up yours tomorrow, Setters, who Jack Chances. It was just chaos. That it was, just, was just, chaos, just chaos, cauldron, ill tempered. And but again, it's so easy. I mean, do you, see, do you see stuff like this anymore? No. I'm not trying to be, wasn't it great back then, but it is like, would anything like this ever happen again? That, that game would not be played in <laughs> climate. No, no chance. I'm not sure it would be played anywhere, but it certainly wouldn't be played at Windsor Park. No. So, what that then brings us back to is that in. Group three, Spain go through as top with 19 points. Republic of Ireland go through on 18 points. Denmark finish on 18 points. And this is the curious thing. I'm assuming the Republic went through on goals scored. Because the, yes, goal, the goal difference, they were both on plus 13. Yes. And isn't it interesting uh... that, that that Ireland team, who famously scored That's so few goals point. in... Um, in to- when they finally got to the tournament, actually went through on goals four. You would never have guessed yes. that they would score more goals. Maybe a bit more. Yeah, you maybe guess they score more goals than that Denmark. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Denmark went out despite conceding. Denmark took it goals. really. I mean, I know you never take it well, but they took it very badly. Isn't it like Fleming Paulson. Paulson's still wounded about it to this day. Yeah, there were loads of. Um, I mean, it was a big injustice, and it was just compounded by the fact it was Spain again. Um, I mean, the, the extent of their the hex Spain had on them was pretty extraordinary. <laughs> you think like eighty four penalty shootout semi final of the Euros, eighty six their great team Spain plugged them five one on a kind of smash and grab. Eighty eight was kind of just a you know putting the boot on a corpse because um, Denmark <laughs> crap. But but then you get another kind of wave of optimism and the Spain do it again. And also to to talk about Mike's point, um, Spain obviously aren't the team we know now, but. Uh, as with Italy, um, Spain hadn't qualified for the Euro 92 either, so um, they almost missed out on back-to-back tournaments. Yeah, incredible. But Spain were different around then, obviously. They didn't have the kind of identity or status they do now, but it was still a bloody... Well, they had an thing. identity because they were managed by miserable Javier Clemente and were full of basically Basque hard men. <laughs> Plus Fernando <Yeah>. Hierro. <laughs> So that was Group 3. So halfway through, let's look at um, Group 4, shall we? Now, this is this is probably the one that most, other than England, this is one that most people probably remember because this was the Belgium, Romania, Wales and the RCS bracket, W2F, close, close bracket. Because I was struggling to remember. I, when I saw the initials, I was like, what the hell was the... I remember the CIS. What the hell was the RCS? <laughs> so it was the Republic of Czechs and Slovaks. This is this was obviously as it, as it was all coming apart in that part of Central Europe. Uh, it was around about that time. So in terms of let's talk about Wales because that's what that most people will will remember. And and Mike, you've written a piece about this right now. In fact, have you not? 
Uh, I have, yeah. It's going up on Eurosport um, tomorrow, I believe. So, or today, if you're well, or the day after, if you're listening to this on Friday. Or <laughs> yeah. yeah. I got the internet's perpetual, isn't it? Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, well, basically, yeah. It, it will be coming out on the fifteenth of November. If you listen to it ahead of that, but if not, it's already there on Eurosport. Please go and have a look. Um, yeah, it's great. Wales has to win by two. Is the short to be certain? Is the is is the short end of this? The Wales team that day, out of interest, was. Neville Southall in his mid-30s by now. David Phillips. Eric Young. Doesn't give interviews now, Eric Young. Completely disappeared. Nobody really knows. Well, yeah, you probably know better than me, but every time, you know, they've done loads of Wimbledon retrospectives and crazy documentaries and and, and they did that, the anniversary of Liverpool Palace and all that kind of thing. And he just just fades. He just doesn't want to talk about any of it. David Batty's the same, apparently. He just doesn't talk about football now. So yeah, Eric Young, Andy Melville, Eric Young and his headband, Andy Melville, Kit Simons, Paul Bowden, Barry Horn, Gary Speed, Ryan Giggs, Ian Rush, and Dean Saunders. What do we think of that team? Well, it's worth a it's worth a quick mention actually for a, a couple of players who weren't there because they got suspended um, when Wales beat Cyprus in the the penultimate game. So Mark Hazelwood, who was the sweeper for Wales. Uh, he got suspended. Uh, but the real big one that they missed was Mark Hughes. Of course, um, yeah, yeah. Now, because Wales had Ian Rush, Dean Saunders and Mark Hughes, who were three of the best strikers in the Premier League at that point, uh, one of the things Yorath did was to try and get them all into the same team as he played Hughes in midfield. Um, it was, you know, really, he, And he just took what he did from playing up front into midfield, you know, holding the ball up, laying it off, bringing people into play, that kind of thing. Um, and on the night against Romania, that was a huge miss. And the the booking that he got against Cyprus as well was so needless because Wales were already winning that game, which they needed to do. Uh, Cyprus were down to ten men, and he just he couldn't help himself. He just bunched <laughs> into a tackle that, you know, he didn't really need to make. Clattered someone. Peak Mark booked. Hughes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, on the night he was a, he was a huge uh, miss for Wales. But uh, the actual the team itself, the team he rattled off, it's. It's a mixture of you know top end Premier League players, particularly you know uh, forwards and midfielders, and then the the back uh, five as it was is mostly comprised of you know players playing in Division One. You know you had players that were kind of squad players at clubs or didn't play regularly, and I think seven of the team at that point were in their thirties as well. Yeah, so they one would of the be things that, at it. yeah 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 one of the things that was hanging over the game was that this you know kind of collection of players it was never going to come round for them again um so it, it was the best look that any of them were ever going to have at getting to a world cup so that only added to the kind of jeopardy on the night as well mike did Giggs play center mid or did he have a kind of more of a roving role because i know they played three five two or five three two depending on your perspective yeah i mean they just cut because they knew he was like the game breaker and they just they let him go wherever basically in speed and barry hall and just you know tried to hold the midfield together while he did that so yeah he pretty much had a free roll gigs it's probably worth mentioning to shoot this fox if it hasn't been shot already about ryan gigs's qualification because obviously he was brought up in manchester yeah and played for england schools is it correct, or to the best of our knowledge, is it correct that he actually did not qualify for England because there's no residency qualification within home nations and both of his parents and all four of his grandparents were Welsh or one of his grandparents was from Sierra Leone, I think is the last thing I heard. But he definitely didn't qualify for England, I don't think. Yeah. As, as, far, 
So as far as I know, that's that's all uh, true. I think he played for England schoolboys when he was young, but to play for England schoolboys, you have to be a schoolboy in England. Yes, indeed. I think is the basic qualification. He actually played, a lot of people seem to forget, he played youth-level football for Wales, I think from under-16s upwards. So he was always going to play for Wales. I mean, he gets a lot of this, you know, why didn't you just, you know, uh, transfer over and play for England but he could never have done that under the rules you know now or then even if he could maybe he kind of you know loves being Welsh and wanted to play I, I think it's so insulting oh yeah you could have played for us like maybe he fucking wanted to play for the country of his birth but, exactly um, so it's you, the Wilfred Zaha thing isn't it you get a you lot know? of that now well, yeah, with Wales. They, they've got they're obsessed with this kind of birther movement with Wales so a certain type of journalist is obsessed with this sort of birther thing you know of who's in the Wales squad and where they were born yeah, and you have this, I don't, just to touch on the point Rob was making, you know, uh, when Wilfred Zahar decided that he didn't want to play for England, you know, Sa- I think Southgate questioned his ambition or something like that. He says, well, who are you to tell someone, you know, which uh, which country they think they identify with and who represents them? It's I think completely... the thing with Giggs was because he had that kind of <clears throat> poor reputation about turning up for friendlies. It was like, well, if you don't actually want to play for the team, why don't you just play for England? Was I think people always just assumed that he just played because he had to. I don't think that was true, by the way. But I'm just, but you know no, what I mean? I mean That's oh, where that... the argument tended to come from, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that yeah, came man. later with Giggs. And I, 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 will, I will just say for him that that's basically what his international career was remembered for, is for not, not playing in a lot of friendlies. But in this campaign, so Wales lost, I think, two of the first four games. Then Giggs, at 19, came into the team uh, to start for the first time against Belgium, scored a free kick, played brilliantly, and he had an impact that was kind of akin to, you know, when Rooney hmm. uh, made, made his debut for England against Turkey. He, ba- he basically transformed the whole team. He transformed the whole campaign. And he's really the main reason that, that Wales got as close as they did. And all of the other players from that era recognised that as well. And it's really funny because when things have not gone so well to come back to the modern times he's managing Wales now of course and where things haven't gone so well in games it's not that far before the veneer comes out that well he never fucking wanted to play for us anyway and now he's you know ballsing it up it's really strange the whole thing with Giggs I think it's just always strange with Giggs full stop there's a kind of barely concealed envy that comes out as kind of anger a lot of the time anyway um so yeah, but that's that's gigs. But obviously the big the big story or the big news here was was Paul Bowden. I looking back at this, I'd never noticed or I couldn't remember how much he looks like a young Tony Hart from Heartbeat, <laughs> if you remember. Um, oh, morphs, uh, yeah, morphs, mate. Yeah, he looks like a yeah. young Tony Hart. But anyway, born in Cardiff in 1964, Paul Bowden started his career with Chelsea Youth before joining his hometown club in 1982 via a short spell with Newport County, and he enjoyed three decent years and a promotion with Cardiff before inexplicably finding himself back in non, in the non-league wilderness with Bath City, Merthyr Tidville and Newport County again from 1985 onwards until Swindon Town came calling of Division 2 as it was then in 1988. He was sold to Palace in 1991 to very little success and he was actually signed back to Swindon in 1992 by none other than Glenn Hoddle. He was player of the season in 1992-1993, included, and this is quite relevant, scoring the winning penalty versus Leicester in quite possibly the most epically mental playoff final that's ever been against Leicester in 1993 to send Swindon to the promised land of the Premier League. And it's as a Premier League player that he, he, he finds himself here. There was another really batshit playoff 
I'm, I'm digressing, but there's another really batshit playoff in the 90s as well. Do you remember the Sunderland-Charlton one? Oh, that was another 4-3, wasn't it? Yeah, Clive Mendonca. Yeah, and Clive Mendonca. He went to penalties, didn't it? And Clive Mendonca won, scored four the... All, yeah. And Clive Mendonca scored the winning penalty and he's for Charlton and he's from Sunderland. Or was it Barnsley? Was it Charlton or Barnsley? I can't remember now. It was a... Charlton. It was, yeah, it was, Charlton. A, it was an absolutely batshit game. Yeah, so that's where we find Paul Bowden. He's a Premier League player with Swindon. After that, I had no idea he kind of went from league football to non-league then back in again but he was how would you describe Bowden solid yeah I, th- I think so yeah I mean he, he was a Premier League player at the time he was Wales' best option I mean Terry Yorath the Wales manager had about you know 20 to 25 players he could re- like realistically pick to put the <laughs> yeah, squad true, together yeah. he always picked small squads um, you know he picked squads of 18 the other option at left back or at left wing back whatever you want to call it, would have been, you know, they could have played Gary Speed there, who's quite versatile, mm. but they needed him in midfield, or they could have played Mark Bowen, but I don't think he was in the Norwich team at that point, but that was the, they were their kind of options. You know, they haven't got six or seven left-backs playing, you know, top-level league football that they can choose from. Gary Speed ended up at left-back for quite a few caps a few years after this. He did, well, he would just play anywhere, wouldn't he, Gary Speed? I always remember the thing about Gary Speed when, People said that Michael Owen was Welsh because they're from the same village, and Michael Owen said, "Well, anybody who's from round here says is English, you know, considers himself to be English anyway." And Gary Speed was like, "No, they fucking don't." <laughs> sort of thing, you know. Because and he got and weirdly, Speed got that question, you know, would you not want to play for England? And he said, "No." And they said, "Why?" Well, said, "Because I'm Welsh." It's like, why do I have to explain this to you? It's kind of so odd. Yeah. So Wales are one. Was it one all when the penalty rolled round, Mike? Yeah, so Romania took the lead in the first half. Uh, a 25-yard shot from uh, Georgi Hadji went under Neville Southall's body. It was a, a horrific mistake from, you know, someone who's one of the, the greatest goalkeepers this uh, this country's ever seen. Um, Hadn't he been sounding off in the week before saying he was in the best form as he's ever been and stuff like that as well, which was not a good. Yeah, we were, say, we were saying he was good as good as he was ten years earlier when he was, uh, you know, when he was playing for Everton in his prime and they were winning leagues and all sorts. Um, yeah, and the shot just went through him. But and you know, Wales they were struggling a bit as well. Like Romania were brilliant on the night, uh, which was amazing given the state of the pitch. I think the rugby team had hacked it up <laughs> uh, a week earlier when they got beaten by uh, Canada in the Arms <clears throat> Park. Big game. But, uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, early in the second half, Wales got back into it. Uh, Dean Saunders sort of scrambled a, a ball in from a free kick, and then it's literally 60 seconds after that uh, that Wales got. A very dubious penalty, it has to be said. I mean, um, if we put the clip up on the, the Twitter feed, uh, Petrescu brings down speed um, in inverted commas. I mean, it looks like a bit of a dive to me. Uh, but yeah, within the within the space of two minutes, the whole game turned around, basically. And, you know, Wales had this gift chance to go in front. And the sense was that, you know, around the stadium, well, if, if this goes in, you know, with just the, the shift in momentum, uh, Romania might have found it quite hard to get back into the game after that. I'm, I don't buy that. In that, because to me, Romania seemed always likely and looked demonstrably a better side, so you can never rule out they might have got another one, I don't think. Oh, they were. I mean, it's complete conjecture on my part, but <laughs> it's obviously... No, yeah, I'm uh, just having the discussion, yeah. It's just because I'm, I'm making the point that people yeah. now reflect on that, like that would have been the winning penalty, that would have got them qualified, when yeah. actually... 
when you look at it, it's probably not quite as simple as that. But that's the way that's the way the narrative now plays out, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, t- I mean, I take the point. There were there was still there was still half an hour left. But I think you know Wales are having to go forward more and more, and they you know they were leaving themselves exposed, and they eventually got caught with a goal that's you know virtually on the break that eventually puts them out uh, with rather chime. But you know they could have tried to shore it up, they could have tried to defend the lead. You know, there's lots of different things they could have done, but you know it's a completely different game if that penalty goes in. I'm not saying necessarily yeah. they would have still have got through, but you can see why it's you know it's a moment that burns so much for them. So, and it finishes 2-1 to Romania. And again, these sliding doors moments. Then, of course, Romania had, well, an absolutely blinding game against Argentina in 94, didn't they? Yes, the Argentina game, it's hard to think of a, a game as good as that since in the World Cup. Uh, Romania beat them 3-2 in the second round. Uh, just destroyed them with some of the most brilliant counter-attacks you could ever see, really. I think they're the most exciting team in the tournament. And we also forget sometimes how good their first group game was. They beat Colombia 3-1, again, with counter-attacks and Hadji scoring from touchline. Um, and we know about Colombia, Escobar, Pele tipping them and everything. And that was just a brilliant, brilliant game. Um, yeah, I think Romania are my favourite team in that tournament. And I guess a lot of people's, you know, Brazil were quite prosaic. There were great stories like Italy and Baggio, um, Bulgaria... Yeah. But I think Romania was just so exciting. I think if you ever, if someone ever paid me to write a book on counter-attacking teams, which, you know, would be great. They'd be right at the top of the list. They were so exciting. And that was a team. With Hadji, yeah, Hadji, Hadji Dimitrescu, Renachoyu, um, and Mike made a good defense, point. wasn't it, yeah? Yeah, just in front of them. Yeah, because they played, I think against Argentina, they played a kind of, at the risk of over going too far into tactics and all that dull crap. But they played a kind of 3-6-1, which is really interesting. And they just would spring. It was fantastic. Um, and they're two counter-attacking goals, and you kind of each person will have their favourite. One, I think, one, Dubitrescu plays... Sorry, Hadji plays in Dubitrescu, and then vice versa um, in the second half. And they do, it's just a most brilliant team. And Hadji, of course... The funny thing about Hadji is when, um, when the Wales game took place, he was playing Serie B with Brescia. I mean, yeah, that's hell? amazing, isn't it? Yeah, Mike Mike dug out a nice quote for his Eurosport piece, Mike, about the uh, Jeremy Goss thing. Oh, yeah. So before <laughs> the game, uh, when, when sort of Romania came into town to do the training, and uh, I think Goss, he says something like, uh, Hadji might be God in his own country, but at least it looks to us like he's a little bit overweight. And, uh, <laughs> oh, it's, like, it's like Ferenc Pushkash all over again, isn't it? Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, how much, it's a pretty gross miscalculation, that, cause, you know, it, I on the night, he was brilliant. And it, it shouldn't have been any surprise. I mean, so this game, the last game in the group, it, it, book, it was bookended by the first game, which was Wales's trip to Bucharest, uh, which went so badly that they went 5-0 down in 35 minutes. <laughs> My word. Uh, and Hadji puts one past Southall uh, with his left foot again, but you know, from like 30 yards or something, which I think Southall gets a hand to, but just can't stop it going in. And yeah, he's a brilliant player. Is he... It's easy to forget how good that Romania team was because a lot of them had bad spells in England or average spells, you know, Dumitrescu, Popescu, yeah. Radjoy, shopping at Harvey Nichols or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> and there's something really irritating about that, how if someone fails in England, it kind of casts a shadow over the whole career as if, you know, I don't know, winning yeah, the League Cup is more important than being one of the stars of the World Cup. But they were just a brilliantly entertaining And like side. it's not possible to leave England and continue to have a great career somewhere else. You know, it's just a blip, mm-hmm. you know, it's... Um, 
we'll probably do USA 94 as a standalone episode at some point but I think the thing to reflect on for me with that was that obviously for me then as this well I've been 18 when the World Cup world that night World Cup rolled around it was my first experience of a World Cup without England being in it yeah me and, too and, and it was I genuinely didn't know how I was supposed to feel about it and I can remember having discussions sort of after a week or two of it be, a week and a half of it being on going, this is absolutely brilliant. Because of the time <laughs> difference, I was I had yes. a summer job. I could come home and the games were just starting. And and you could watch three games up to like one o'clock in the morning. It was just absolutely brilliant. I just the finished amount, my A-levels. It was great. I agree. I was the same. The amount of times I woke up from my bed and it would just be like four in the morning and the BBC test card bleeping away. Like, <laughs> it was just beautiful. It was great fun. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, this is this finishes. Romania go through. Uh, Paul Bowden, just to bookend it off, remained at Swindon until 1996 before fading into retirement at the age of 37 via a short loan spell at Wickham. And then he, three... um... Go on, right? Go on, Rob. No, Go I was going to say, Mike's got a nice little detail about what he did a few days later as well, which I didn't know. Yeah, oh yeah, so three days uh, after the Romania game and after he missed the penalty, uh, Swindon were playing Ipswich and they were 2-1 behind with, I think, five minutes left and Swindon got a penalty. And Bowden stepped straight up blasted it in um a lot of people think he blasted the ball in cardiff because he panicked but that's that's how he always took penalties yeah he did he was drove it yeah yeah and he actually scored three out of three for wales he was wales's designated penalty taker mm. so I mean, you do get a lot of now well why didn't rush take it why didn't saunders take it i mean because Bowden was, was bloody good at penalties <laughs> simple yeah. as that really it's just sad though isn't it you think you like you think you take penalties all throughout your career you quite enjoy it you're good at it it's never in the brochure that moment, is it? That level of pressure. I mean, you're right. It wasn't the last minute. It was half an hour to go, but you never conceive. It would have been the like biggest that. penalties ever taken, even leaving aside oh, the, the, the playoff game. You know. Yeah, which is huge. But I mean, it's just on another. The thing is, it was not like it's not even a terrible penalty. He hit the bar, you know. It's he like, wasn't it's, that far off, was he? And the, the keeper so was nowhere, off. was he? You know. Yeah, it's, it's a couple of inches away from being a, a Kevin Pressman almost. Um, <laughs> but he actually he. he for the whole thing with a heck of a lot of dignity, um, from what you read and see, um, yeah, it seems to be and seems to be at peace with it now because you know, it could there some people could ruin their life, really. Uh, I think I think it defined his career, but it sounds like it didn't find his life. So there's, on him. there's a number of quotes that he's come from, and I suppose there's one thing he, one of the quotes I picked up, he says, I've had to live with that hurt and it never quite goes away. And it must feel it must be a bit like grief, I suppose. I'm not trying to Direct. trivialize no, grief, no, totally. but, but you know what I mean. It must be a bit like grief that it's always there. There's always a remembrance of of what could have been and what you nearly had. Interestingly, the Welsh football show that uh, Scorio, which is Welsh for score, mm. if you didn't know that, uh, did a sort of phoenix from the flames bit on it with Malcolm Allen in 2009. It's actually on YouTube if you watch. And he and he he sets it up again, and Paul Bowden scores it. Says, "Oh, why didn't I do that at the time?" And here's an here's an example of what the internet's done, right? No, the first no. the first comment on the YouTube video is from some knobhead who says, and I quote: "To add insult to injury, he has the gall to play a part in a video making fun of it. If I had my way, I'd strip him of all his Welsh caps." <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the modern day football commentator. I mean, to be honest, obviously that's probably not typical, or maybe it is. I don't no, know, it, it, but that yeah. just no, fucking not, sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah. If I have my way, thankfully you never will. You, you miss a penalty, all your caps are taken away. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I don't. Oh, I, I don't know. Yeah, let's Give not go on. down that road. But yeah, it's uh, absolutely horrendous. In, of course, in the in Belgium qualified as the other team at uh, this group, Romania were top on fifteen points. Belgium also had fifteen points, but Romania Romania had a superior goal difference, probably because of that thwacking of Wales in Bucharest, I imagine. Um, which led Czechoslovakia as a listed, but it was the Republic of the Czechs and Slovaks, and Wales ended up in fourth. Yeah, but they would have gone through with a one-goal win because of the way the other results. Yeah, there were a couple of, couple of postscripts worth um, talking about. A fan was killed straight after the final whistle. What happened? Was it a f- something threw a flare? Didn't they? Yeah, yeah two um, two fans uh, took a distress flare into the game uh, for some reason. I like, let it off. I think right on the final whistle. And it just projected across the pitch, and um, it hit a an elderly fan in the north stand, uh, right. and, and killed him instantly. And I think you know they went down for. It was like firing a firework at somebody, wasn't it? Basically. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and then Euro's contract expired the day after, didn't it? And they didn't renew it. And they went yeah. into a deep and almost well, a, a, a very what looked like irretrievable funk for quite some years after this, didn't they, Wales? Yeah, well, yeah, until I mean, Hughes came back as manager, actually. Yeah. I mean, they didn't renew Yarod's contract, uh, the FAW. They were, they were basically hedging their bets. They were waiting to see if they were going to qualify or not. And when they didn't qualify, Yarod went in and said, well, you know, basically I've regenerated Welsh football. And he asked for an extra £30 a week. Is the, is the <laughs> and they, uh, oh, my God. And they turned him down. Uh, so from there, they went and they appointed John po- John Toshak on a part-time basis, who was managing uh, Real Sociedad at the time, and agreed to do Wales on a part-time basis. Uh, Toshak uh, turned up to the camp. I spoke to David Phillips, who was the right-back in the squad, um, and he told me the story that Toshak uh, turned up to the hotel, said, oh, hi, Rushy, hi, Neville to Southall, and said to the rest of the squad, I don't know who any of you are. <laughs> which didn't go down very well. And then in Toshak's first game, which was against Norway, uh, the team were booed off at half-time and at full-time. They lost 3-1, and the, the fans were chanting Yorath's name. So Toshak quit after 47 days. And then Wales uh, went and appointed Mike Smith, who got, you had managed the team in the 1970s, but had been out of the game for a while. Not and the by DJ. The end of, no, not the DJ. But by the end of 1994, they were just all over the place. And almost a year to the day after losing to Romania, they lost 5-0 in Georgia, which uh, was one of the worst results in their history. Um, and it's just the, the space, you know, the, the amount by which they tanked in the space of a year was just uh, incredible. Remarkable stuff. So that was Group 4. Group 5, nothing to talk about. Russia and Greece have already have bossed it and qualified already. Beating off the mighty Iceland, Hungary, Luxembourg, and Yugoslavia, some in in on, on the way to doing that. I bet England would still have fucked that group up if they were in there as well. Um, so it leaves us to finish off with Group Six, which again was all happening on this one night. It's easy to forget this that this was all this was all going on, um, which is France's group. Whereas heading into this, Sweden have already qualified, haven't they? And yes. it's between sort of France and Bulgaria as to who's going to go France. through. Yeah, France home to Bulgaria, France need a point. But they'd already messed it up because uh, the previous home game, previous game, they were home to Israel, who were the group uh, clowns. And they were 2-1 up. They needed to win to guarantee They battered them in Tel Aviv as well, hadn't they? Yeah, 2-1 up with five minutes to go at home. Everyone's 
basically already on the piss celebrating. And um, I think the one newspaper had already sent their front page, you know, qualified and all this. And then Roddy Rosenthal bulldozes past people to make two goals and they lost. Um, so that meant they went to Bulgaria game needing a draw, uh, which you'd still expect at home, but obviously be careful what you expect. <laughs> yeah, so they were still sort of red-hot favourites coming in, into this, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Against, oh yeah, massively against Bulgaria. against Bulgaria. And there's so many okay. subplots to this game; it's it, it's remarkable. Um, this was obviously the famous game that it didn't end Ginola's career because he was actually playing for France again after this, didn't he? Because a lot of people think he didn't, but he did. But it was the kind of at least half of the nails in the coffin was in this game, wasn't it? Oh yeah, depending on what you believe. Jared Hulia was the manager, and mm. um, well, we should say what happened basically. So, yeah. Um, I think it was Cantona, was it? Papa scored an early goal. I think it was Cantona. Cantona. Yeah. Costa Dinov equalised for half Correct. time, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He shouldn't even have been in the country. Didn't even have <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about the subplots. Yeah, he was literally so, an illegal. They bundled him through because basically, I don't know why they'd forgotten to apply for a visa for Costa Dinov and I think the goalkeeper. No, and someone else. Can you imagine sure. what Marine Le Pen would say in this day and age if <laughs> that came out? Yeah. But the goalkeeper. Mihailov, play, I think it was him, knew of some point where border control wasn't very good or something. So they literally <laughs> did sneak into which is astonishing. And um, second half goes on, you know, France one goal away from ignominy. Um, and then with about five seconds to go, Ginola, I think, put, instead of protecting the ball by the corner flag, put across Wangs across towards Cantona, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, Bulgaria break at the speed of light. Kostadinov roofs this outrageous goal from 20 yards from the inside the area I forget um, and so yeah France France gone um, and Julia and Gidler, um had a very public fallout that's gone on ever since really Julia I think he he, did, he, he was supposed to call him a murderer which he de- denies um, but he, Julia that is called yeah. Gidler, he certainly called him a bastard in a book quite a few years ago um, but I think he I think he called him a murderer as well but anyway he basically went to town on him um, One of the quotes from Julia that I like is, <laughs> referring to Ginola, he says, he committed a crime against the team. I repeat, <laughs> a crime <laughs> against the team. You know, let me just hammer this home, what I think about this. That he committed, a, he tried to score a goal late in the game because obviously he would have <laughs> known that 14 seconds later, Emil Kostadino would have le- roofed the ball into the net. That's the thing. It's not like he, um, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I can't even think of anything that relevant but it's not like it was the other end of the field i mean it was a it was, was quite so the counter attack wasn't it, <laughs> yeah, it was. and it was a belting finish just absolutely lashed it um and yet against sliding doors because they had no real pedigree i mean we all knew stoichkov but i don't think many of the other players were known uh, before usa 94 and they obviously blundered through to the semis but germany out um I always find it remarkable how many of the bulgaria team almost have the same face with like a different haircut photoshopped <laughs> on that kind of like, it's sort of like, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah, you look at that Bulgaria team that day, who to some extent became household names, didn't they? Mihailov, the yeah, keeper. Call, you know, uh, Trifon Ivanov, the werewolf defender. Yeah. Yes. You know, did, even like Krasimir, do you remember Krasimir Balakov with his sort of bubble perm? He was he was quite a good player, actually. Yeah. yeah did Ivanov score an absolute screamer at Wales a year later? Yeah, sure, I think he did. Yeah, yes, he did. Yeah, Ivanov played in the well Bulgaria. <laughs> Didn't Ivanov? Wasn't Ivanov still playing in one of Hoddle's last games? That that horrible draw. Possibly, I'm that sure was he was. Mis- Miserable game. Yeah, but yeah, Lechkov, um, of course, Kostadinov, Stoichkov. People knew about, but certainly, I mean, Lechkov became everyone sort of 
favourite player, didn't he, for a little period? Again, you talk about, it's interesting, the point Mike raised about Taylor, USA 94, and the impact on Euro 96. You wonder what would have happened had Julio's France gone to USA 94 and, just, you know, say got to the quarters, how that would have impacted upon what ultimately happened in 98 um, with Jaco taking over and obviously what happened with Cantona eventually being marginalised and Gillenlai who was marginalised by Jaco, not by Julio. Um, like so, so many fascinating uh, kind of alternate realities. Yeah, so... One thing, uh, sorry, on, one yeah, thing well. about the... Uh, just to go back to the Genoa thing quickly, if you compare it to like another famous epic last-minute goal, uh, the Liverpool-Arsenal game from 1989, yes. I think in yeah. the last... Uh, John Barnes mm, yeah. has yeah, got the ball does. wide on the right and he, he tries to dribble it into the area. I mean, all right, he doesn't overhit a cross or anything, but he does basically, you know cough the ball up when he could have run it into the corner or something and then Arsenal break down the pitch and they score I don't know 15-20 seconds later or whatever but as far as I'm aware I'm not aware of anyone that would that does blame John Barnes for you know not trundling down into the corner with a ball and just protecting it so you say uh, that but there's a fan on the internet who said if I had my way I'd strip him all <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, you're right think, yeah, one thing we have to remember about Genoa as well, actually, is that he, he did have a very good career in the Premiership, so you can just forget everything else, can't you? <laughs> yeah, of all, course. That's all that matters. So. I always got the impression with Julian, and I don't know, this might be unfair, but that he was quite good at, um, at putting the blame on someone else. I mean, this is obviously an extreme example, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I've he seemed a bit really of a shit house to me, Jared Julio, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's the word I was striving for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Obviously, a better Didn't manager you... than I am, but yeah. Didn't Genoa sue him or threaten to sue well, him as possibly. well? Possibly. Well, yeah, probably. Well, Genoa's, but Genoa's been up to all sorts, hasn't he? Because, of course, yeah, you know, he, he did all this. He started at Toulon. He went via PSG. Didn't he cause a lot? Wasn't there a lot of eruptions? Weren't, wasn't Papin and someone else booed in this game because they played for Marseille because Ginola was the kind of darling of Paris? So yeah, it, something like that. There was, there was some wonderfully yeah. sort of Gallic about it, really. They were all kind of falling out with each other. Um and Ginola ended up, he went to Newcastle in 95, then Tottenham. And very memorably went to Newcastle and Tottenham. Less memorably went to Villa. And then I could, and virtually, because it almost amnesiac level, I'd forgotten you he say, played five games for Everton. I'd forgotten that. You say less memorably you went to Villa. I always remember that spell because of that row we had with John Gregory. Oh, I think yeah. Gregory say he's got a bit of timber. And then Ginola scored a scream and that we Oh, yeah, he lifted <laughs> And hit himself the in the six pack and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But yeah, there's not much timber there. There was that horrible John Gregory period when everyone was a bit like with um, Burnley now, where the certain parts of the press corps are like licking the lips and salivating and in a froth about the number of English players. That John Gregory's Aston Villa was the first yes. one. Oh, they're look, they're in second and they've got loads of English players. You know, it was kind of all that kind of stuff. He's, I, I thought that Ginola played more for France actually, but he only had 17 caps. His last cap was in the 10. He came off the bench. In France's 10 0 win over Azerbaijan for Euro 96 qualifying. Again, as you said, Rob, under Amy Jacquet. But Jacquet, I don't know, seemed to have him in the squad for a bit, never really played him, and then dispatched him pretty much, didn't he? This, whatever yeah. his form was in England. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't and he, I remember Ginola's quoted, I can't remember the exact quote, but he's quoted as effectively saying he couldn't celebrate when France won the World Cup. Which is spectacularly narcissistic, isn't it? But um, it must be it must be a bit strange though, especially if you think you're good enough. Um, I mean, by '98, I, I suppose he got, yeah, I suppose he was. He just didn't suit the way they played though. Jacky didn't really play with wingers, did he? Um, no, not really. So yeah, I, I will. Just, I, want, 
Sorry, I, I was just going to say, um, as much as I would have loved to have seen Cantona play at that World Cup, it, it just to go back to that sliding doors thing again, what we would have been deprived of is, you know, Bulgaria being there and one of the great World Cup kind of upsets of my lifetime when they beat Germany in that quarterfinal. And, yes. you know, I can, st- I can still remember how viscerally delighted I was in only a way an English teenager can be <laughs> when you're still a bit of a tip back then. Do you know what I mean? Now I can kind of realise what I was like, but the delight that was that that was met that I met that result with and what that and one it was a great game anyway it was a lovely game to watch but yeah I just remember being so delighted that wonderful that, header by Lechkov of course yeah that was basically the end of the tournament for them and they didn't turn up in the semi-final and then they just got absolutely hammered in the uh the third and fourth place yeah. player which doesn't mean anything anyway but uh yeah they'll always have that 2-1 he's done all right since general though hasn't he he married a model of course he fucking did he lives in Saint Tropez. Of course, he fucking does. The other thing I'm is, L'Oreal career. Spends, his, spends his time having a tan and wearing a deep V-neck t-shirt and blazer for a living. Basically, it seems. Had France um, qualified, we wouldn't have had that lovely moment when Cantona chinned someone before the semi-final. <laughs> I think it was. A, I think it was an official. Um, yeah, he was arrested. I, I don't know what happened eventually, but this yeah. was Cantona's last game, wasn't it? Possibly, I, I, think, know, I, know, right? I know that you know it's often it's often seen as that they kind of pulled the drawbridge up on Ginola, but I think it was actually Cantona's last game. Well, he, obviously, he was banned not a million. Well, I suppose it was a while after. Yeah, I'm not sure to be honest. Um, and Ginola, of course, ended me. up trying to run for the FIFA presidency, sponsored by Paddy Power, the bookmaker. Mm. If you remember that little episode, <laughs> funny no, he enough, played a few. He, he played a few more games, Cantona. Oh, did he? Right. Okay. Played, he played his last game was. Uh, 18th of January 95. So basically, just before he sorted out that gobby piece of shit at Selhurst Park, um, <laughs> which is the last game of um, for France. Yeah. What's it? Danny Baker says, What's everyone getting so upset about? He's only a Palace fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So they, yeah, as I say, I was generally surprised that, that Ginola was still involved with France for another two years after that. I, I, you know, I thought, like everybody else, that it, that it came to quite a rough end quite quickly. It's quite interesting the evolution of that team because by by Euro '96 you already had Zidane and um, Jorkaev and I think Dugarry, uh, which kind of became the the midfield core that or midfield attacking core that won the the World Cup. When you look at that um, team, so that, when I looked at that team that beat Azerbaijan ten 0 in, in qualifying, the core of it is pretty much there for '98. Mm. You know, it, it's it's there or thereabouts. Really, yeah, I mean, I remember there was all the fuss about Cantona because obviously he won the Dublin England uh, almost on his own. There's no Stefan uh, Givarsh the though, is he? Yeah, yeah. The thing is, they're totally. I mean, it's yeah. I don't know. They're totally different players, aren't they? Well, you can't argue um, the results, can you? You know, Emi Jacke can always point and say, "Yeah, but I won a World Cup without Cantona." And yeah, you know, Cantona, like, you know, how well, yeah, how much better does it get? You know. Yeah. yeah. They also. I mean, France. They're also drawing on that team, the Marseille team that had won the European Cup. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, six months earlier, I mean, just, If you look at the rest of that group, I mean, it's quite. Really surprising they didn't qualify from it. Yeah, Sweden. So yeah, to, to to finish it off, Sweden finished top with 15 points. Bulgaria finished on 14 after beating France, who we just covered. France finished third on 30. Then the rest is Austria, Finland, and, and and Israel. And of course, it was the Israel result that did for France in the end. So off they went to Euro 90, Euro 96, like Euro that. 94. Honest to God, <laughs> USA 94. Um, Oh, as you mentioned, Robert, Argentina were playing Australia that night. 
Yes. Um, and also, I think, who'd already qualified by this stage? Just oh, there were quite just... a few. So all the other South American teams, Brazil, Bolivia, uh, and all the Colombia, Mexico, yeah, exactly. Nigeria, Morocco, Cameroon, South yeah, Korea. Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Saeed, um, I mean, Saeed Al-Oiwaran and his big long galloping legs. I'm sure, I'm sure other people could think of an example, but it feels like I can't think of a, a date in football that defines so many careers. You think of Gautieri, Ginola, uh, McLaughlin, um, all the others that I've completely forgotten. <laughs> Canizares. Uh, Paul Bowden. Paul Bowden, yeah. Paul Bowden, of course. I mean, that's a, a, and probably others as well. Um, yeah, I just find it fascinating that, that like a whole career is boiled down to that. I often wonder if they dream, you know, does Bowden dream about the penalty? Um does Galtieri dream about it or do you just put on the videos? It's like in the same way I put on the video of me winning redheads on Memu TV in 2003. <laughs> um, yeah, I just find it fascinating whether they dream about it, whether they whether they feel like it defines just their career or their life. Um, I know. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them say, I mean, Venables often talks about Euro 96, doesn't he? He says, you know, he, he said, he, you know, he thinks about it pretty much every day one way or another. And I'm not sure how much of that is playing up to the to the interview and stuff like that, but... I come back to the point about grief. Because if it's gone badly for you, it must uh, it, it must haunt you. But and also on the positive side, and you know Lechkov, it completely defined his presence as a footballer because nobody would ever have heard of him if they'd lost that game. He'd have just no, been that. Bo- well, they wouldn't even have remembered him. He'd have just been a nondescript bald bloke who played for Bulgaria <laughs> once. Yeah, amazing. Right there, you go, everybody. That is a well, not so quick, but a run through. The 17th of November, 1993, a seismic, fantastic, what, what, what we wouldn't give to sit through an evening like that again. Especially, if we, yeah. it'd be even better now, because it'd be all, well, would it be even better now on the, on the well, red exactly. button, or was there something about the mystique of it that, that made it so much better? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's quite nice, because did we mention that the BBC Cup from England? We haven't mentioned that, no. That's no. penalty, which was interesting, and obviously there were loads of complaints from... Um, from, Wasn't like uh, over three thousand complaints. It was like a ridiculous number of complaints. Yeah, it was, th- because... was thirty-four thousand in five Gee. minutes, <laughs> and that was before you even had email and stuff. I mean, now you can understand people just spat. Imagine it on Twitter and stuff now. Honestly, oh my yeah, god! You see, head of sport probably have to resign or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. yeah. Well, they got more um, channels now. I suppose you wouldn't have to do it. But, um, quite a big call. Though. I'd love to have been in the BBC studio when they were making that call, like, because it's pretty much the minute the penalty was given, wasn't it? Um, they mm. go there before it's taken, um, and good on them as well, because obviously it was far more. Yes. I mean, by then it was pretty. I think I think Holland might have just gone two one up, but England was blundering around like clowns anyway, so it was obvious they weren't. Being and we've qualified. talked about that game, but the atmosphere was. I mean, I know there's hardly anybody there. It was just an awful game in every sense. That England San Marino game, wasn't it? Yes. And on that, an awful game in every sense. Thank you very much for listening to us, and I hope you've enjoyed that. And I'm sorry it's been so long. I promise you won't take as long next time. We will speak to you all soon. Take care and goodbye.